the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening. Welcome. Welcome back to our very last show of the year. (laughs) Duh. It's New Year's Eve. I'm Randy Corcoran, your pumped-up purveyor of principled, passionate patriotism, still unafraid to call out the corrupt, coordinated, Democrat-controlled media machine here or anywhere. And you know me as Tea Party Chair, as your Republican National Committee man from Colorado. It is my solemn duty and promise to stand in the fray with you, and I will continue to call out Democrats and Republicans who won't do the same. We've got no calls tonight because we're pre-recorded, but do grab the free-to-download 710-CAN-US app and text to studio right now, whether you're listening live or on the podcast. And if you miss any part of the show, grab those podcasts later at 710KNUS.com or wherever you get them. I'll be watching those texts, and I love responding to you live. Coming up, investigative journalist, New York Times bestselling author and Antifa hunter Andy No. He broke the story on Colorado Springs Antifa founding member, now self-described local journalist, Sean, now known as Heidi Beetle. But first... A great interview for our New Year's Eve special, especially given the topic of our final hour today. In the final hour, you'll hear from all of the top candidates that I have to choose from when I cast my vote for RNC chairman in January. My pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, is here. Civil rights attorney and Republican National Committee woman from California, Harmeet Dillon, is here. And the current chair, now running for her fourth two-year term, Ronna McDaniel. All that in the final hour. But now, literally, by popular demand on Wake Up with Randy Corcoran, listener's choice, you probably met him listening to Steve Bannon, maybe as far back as the Breitbart days. He still pops up on War Room from time to time, but now he's doing his own thing. I first met our next guest in person at CPAC, and he has appeared, well, he appeared on a show we broadcast from there, but we've had him on many times before on other shows that I've done. He does not do Saturdays. So what a treat, since we're pre-recording on Friday, to welcome back to Denver and back to the show former chief advisor to Nigel Farage, former editor-in-chief of Breitbart London, and now mixing it up more than ever as the editor-in-chief of the hard-hitting National Pulse. Yep, it's the warrior king, Raheem Kassam. Raheem, thank you, my friend. Welcome to the show. I am, I am going to need to take you on the road with me to do that introduction. I thank you so much. Well, I'd it's say you what, to be here. you're what, 36 years old? That's it. Yeah. So, you know, I got, I'm 63 now, and I got activated about 12, I guess we're starting 13 years when the Tea Party movement started to spin up. Mm-hmm. And I realized early on that the only way, at least at the time, I thought to effectuate change, given our you know, two-party system, was to work my way into the Republican Party and start pushing back on all of the uniparty nonsense. And uh, so all of a sudden, I find myself as Republican National Committee man, and as uh, the leader chair of the biggest Tea Party group in Colorado, I think that's pretty cool, because uh, we need grassroots activists trying to make these decisions going forward. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And and I agree, uh, you know, up to the point where also you have to consider, as as I have recently written, you know, the 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 point of the institution itself, right? Not not just who's running it, but but once it's it's being run, what is it being run for? Whose interest is it being run in? And I, you know, sometimes I think we forget those questions. We're too busy sort of trying to, uh, um, you know, arrange the deck chairs around the Titanic. And <laughs> we forget where the Titanic is supposed to end up in the end, you know? Well, I just, uh, it's pure coincidence, and I'm so glad it worked out well, because you actually wrote about this issue uh, just after Christmas, and uh, and I guess maybe rather than jumping right to the conclusion, I'll just share the title with everybody. Who becomes the next RNC chairman is less important than what the RNC should become. You really could care less who I vote for in January. And, 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 and isn't that wonderful? <laughs> because I, I'm not an American. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. But I am here to sort of impart some of the lessons, the hard lessons that we learned in my country when the conservative movement was taken over by, like you said earlier, the uniparty types. And if people are still following uh, British politics, not that they necessarily have any reason to nowadays, it's pretty, it's pretty boring and tame compared to some, some, some yesteryear scandals that I'm sure your audience remembers well. But if you are following it, you recognize that the uniparty uh, started this war uh, you know, from, from very many different angles, but one also being inside the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement. And look at the prime ministers that we've had since that war and look at the prime minister we have now, you know, and, and, and nothing's changed. So, so I very much see it as my job to, to not necessarily tell you who to vote for, but to warn you, like, hey, you know, if, if, if your only question is the who, and your question is not the what and the why and the how and the when, as we often forget to ask those corollary questions, um, then there almost isn't a point in that very first question at all. Talking with Raheem Kassam, the, are, are you the founder of National Pulse? I know you're running the show over there. Well, yeah, uh, it's complicated. I'm the founder of it in its current iteration, but it did previously exist as something else, and then we took that over. So, yeah, I just, I just say editor. Okay. The uh, it was very interesting to watch what happened in Britain because we saw a prime minister get elected and she lasted, what, less than 40 days because it, it seemed like and, you know, I don't pay close attention to what's going on over there, that she was coming in with the idea of actually keeping some promises that she had made as a so-called conservative. Give us a minute on that. Obviously, we want to talk about the RNC more. Yeah, I, yeah, I wish it were that, Randy. I, I do. Um, you know, Liz Truss, I think it was a total of 44 days she had in office, um, making her, you know, the, 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 the worst tenure, shortest tenure of any uh, prime minister in the modern era. Well, you know, she grew up a, a liberal Democrat. And we had a third party in the United Kingdom called the Liberal Democrat Party. It's It's sort of where you go if you're if you're maybe not quite as hardline and authoritarian socialist as, as the Labour Party, but you're, you're, you're definitely extremely woke and you're definitely extremely, um, you know, climate conscious and, and all of that. And, and that was her politics for a very long time. She described herself as a, a UK Republican, which is, which is an anti-monarchist. 
Um, and so she really had no business being the conservative prime minister. But what happened was she surrounded herself with sort of uh, libertarian economist types, you know, sort of Randians and Hayekians and, and, and uh, all of that, very, very sort of neoliberal libertarianism uh, in terms of economic policy. And, and that is predominantly the right wing economic policy in, in Westminster, our version of Washington, D.C. The problem is, um, you know, in doing in taking that route, that economic route, which is a divergence from all of the Keynesian tax and spending stuff that we've had in the United Kingdom for, for several decades now. She both alienated the political establishment immediately out of the box, and she also alienated the public, who for them, that level of like overnight, complete sea change, philosophical economic shift in Britain seemed scary. Now, it seems scary in a lot of ways because you know, the corporate media described it thusly, the BBC, Sky News, all of that, you know, they were intent on showing her as a, as a, you know, radical extremist when it comes to the economy. But the truth is, I mean, she was probably more uh, establishment than, than one of her female predecessors, Theresa May. She's certainly more establishment than Margaret Thatcher was when Margaret Thatcher came to power uh, in the 80s. So and it's funny because because Thatcher actually had a quote, right? When you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit from both sides. And that's what Liz Truss was trying to do there. Well, a, a good example, I guess, of what not to do in politics. And, you know, for, for all the flaws people want to find with him, I, I've never in my years of paying attention to politics seen anyone step into office willing to swing hard on both sides of the political aisle and do his best in spite of all kinds of internal opposition to actually keep the promises he made to the American public. Donald Trump. Oh, I, I mean, I mean, you know, that was something else. And we won't, we won't necessarily see something quite as, as um, theatric almost, you know, as that in our lifetimes. The, the wonderful thing about Trump, of course, is that he didn't just do things that he said he was going to do. He did them with, with gravitas, he did them with 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 you know this sort of verve that knocked the establishment onto its heels every time. They they couldn't understand what he was you know where he was coming from, why he was saying the things he was saying, and it, and it terrified them. Right, it terrified them to the point where you know this week I've been going through a lot of the January sixth committee stuff, and you start to read some of the some of the questions that they ask people who were obviously involved in riling some of the crowds up that day and causing them to do some of the things that happened. And you read them attempting to excuse that behavior of those people. Why? Because if they, if they pinned incitement on somebody else that day, they would no longer be able to go after Trump for that say, very same thing. And so, you know, it's gotten to the point now in this country. You remember, I came to the United States seven, seven, six or seven years ago now. And predominantly, especially post-Brexit, because I saw so much promise in, in you know, a, a Trump and post-Trump America as a result of Donald Trump's sort of policies. And I wanted to be on the ground and, 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 and you know, studying it and, and learning from it and reporting on it. And it's just it's so amazing because I'm here on Capitol Hill and I watch the way this town has changed. They are more than willing not just to stab the ordinary American in the back. Um, in terms of what they're supposed to be in terms of their representatives. But it's very clear that they're also willing to shoot themselves in the feet repeatedly. 
undermining their own institutions, undermining their own statures. You know, you think of people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. These, these were people who you might once at least have thought would walk around with their heads held high and their chest puffed out. But they have debased themselves as well as your institutions. Such is their level of Trump derangement syndrome. Such a pleasure it was as RNC committee man to vote for the censure of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. It was just a real joy. But yeah, the exposure of the deep state, uh, the work that Elon Musk has done, all of those things are going to be, I think, tremendous opportunities for the American people to, to wake up and understand just how little freedom that we have right now when it comes to trying to sort of, you know, dictate to our government what we, the people, want to have happen. Here's what I'd like to do. We're talking with Raheem Kassam. You should follow him on Twitter at Raheem Kassam. He's the editor-in-chief of the National Pulse. Really, really hard-hitting news and editorials over there. Can we take a pause with you? Can you stay with us? We'll come back. I really want to get back to the RNC since we've got that big second hour coming up with all of the frontrunners vying for that job. God almighty, who'd want it, you know? All right, Raheem Kassam stays with us. I hope you will, too. We'll wrap up our interview with him when we return here on 710K in U.S. All right, New Year's Eve special continues here. Wake up with Randy Corcoran on 710KNUS. So pleased to be joined by my friend, a warrior, a guy who was in the trenches of the Brexit movement, which, of course, the globalists and uh, uniparties around the world have done everything in their power to slow down, if not stop completely. Uh, But we've got him here to talk about the RNC, because in the second hour, we will have all of the top candidates Mike Lindell, Harmeet Dillon, Ronna McDaniel will be on the show. And Raheem, you came out with a piece just after Christmas that uh, was, was pretty darn powerful. You've got some criticisms for all of them. And, uh, and your point is that it's far less about the leadership than what really we the grassroots demand as we move forward uh, from these parties and whether they really matter at all. So let's break it down first. My first guest in the next hour is going to be Mike Lindell. What are your thoughts on him for the new position in the RNC? Well, um, yeah, so we alluded to it in the last segment, um, and that is, that is I've watched the hollowing out of democracy from within the conservative movement in the United Kingdom, and therefore, you know, people such as yourself and your listeners um, would have found themselves with less of a say. So, so my contention uh, is that, you know, it isn't just who leads the organization, it's what the organization is purposed to do. Uh, and, and the organizations like this, in party politics, should be purposed to represent the membership, the party membership, um, you know, people who are, are stakeholders and, and, and donate their, you know, their hard-earned cash, not just, uh, you know, and no offense to you, but not just a small segment of people out there who are tasked with bringing, you know, the next chairman in. And you ask about Mike Lindell. Look, I went to his cyber symposium in, in South Dakota. I've known Mike for a very long time. He's been a long time sponsor of the war room and so on and so forth. Um, but in that time, I've also got to see how haphazard Mike Lindell is. And, and you know, you could love him, as, as I know a lot of people do, but you also have to be able to say, well, okay, but, you know, there wasn't this great level of, 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 of fraud exposure and there wasn't a return to the Trump presidency, you know, and a, and a year into the Biden's and there wasn't a absolute nine nil Supreme Court ruling. And it was sort of all these things Mike Lindell has, has politically promised along the way. And don't get me wrong, I have a my pillow. I love my my pillow. <laughs> I've got nothing against the guy. <laughs> but politically, um, if, if you thought that when 
Trump came to D.C., his biggest problem was personnel um, and, and some of the appointments that he made, then, then, you know, you're going to experience that very same frustration with somebody like Lindell. Now, Lindell probably, for me, would be the most, uh, you know, out of the three, the one I felt com- most comfortable voting for, but only as a chaos agent, right? Not because I believe that he will actually... Um, necessarily impact the work of the RNC on a day-to-day basis, but, you know, the technical elements of the RNC on a day-to-day basis. But sometimes the world needs chaos agents, right? Sometimes institutions need, um, you know, supreme parody from within um, in order for people to realize what a farce they have become. Yeah, I love um, I, I love that analogy yeah. because I, I, I often refer to Mike Lindell as a heat-seeking missile and, and maybe sometimes <laughs> without a guidance system. But, you know, he's, he's <laughs> he hits a lot of targets, he blows them up, and one of these days he's going to hit one that really matters. I, I really do believe that. And I also mm-hmm. believe he would, you know, work his tail off and, uh, and raise a ton of money. So um, let's set him aside. I don't want to run out of time. I know you've had some... Yeah. Unless you have a final comment on him, which is fine. I, I know you've got, you've had some personal experience with Harmeet Dillon and, and her law firm. Yeah, so Harmeet was a strange one because, uh, you know, I often thought uh, of her work as I saw it online as, 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 as good and reliable and decent and, and, and respectable. And then I unfortunately had a couple of personal interactions with her her team and the kind of the way that they operate and so i started doing a little bit more digging i couldn't understand what this what this animosity was about and i I got into it and i found that there was this this incredible link between uh harmi and rana right at the rnc harmi being rana's choice of of legal representation for the rnc over the last few years and and i said i tweeted one day i said well look we've all got problems with how the rnc has been equipped legally to take on these last couple of elections that we think, you know, had big problems with them. And who, who's been the law firm? Well, it's been Harvey's law firm dealing with a lot of these things. And so I tweeted that and, and immediately her team starts sending me, you know, abusive messages and saying that I'm defaming them and so on and so forth. And I just thought to myself, that's a strange, that's a really strange way to defend yourself in that circumstance and situation. And the way I, the way I've come out on, on Hami is, and, and by the way, after the, after I published my article, Hami reached out to me personally um, to apologize about things that had occurred between us in the past. So to credit to her for doing so. Um, but, I sort of started to look at it like if if Rana is Putin, then Harmi is Medvedev. You know, you remember that sort of interchangeability that you had between those two in Russia in the 2000s. This is what this is what those two seem like to me. By the way, I want to make sure we get this in before we run out of time. Where can people read this article? It's very detailed, very interesting. Yeah, it's on all of my social media profiles. It's on Substack, uh, RaheemKassam.substack.com. Uh, and you can get there as well by just going to RaheemKassam.com and it'll also redirect you. Have a couple of minutes or so left. And uh, before we move on to Rana McDaniel, I will just mm-hmm. tell you as a grassroots guy, based on the tons of emails and text messages and phone calls that I get, and I'll tell this to Rana McDaniel, probably tell it to Mike Lindell as well, um, I, Harmeet would be the choice. There's no question that that's where the energy is from the grassroots folks that at least I'm hearing from. And uh, But I just want to – I am not endorsing, uh, not yet for sure. If there's a, almost a month to go. I want to hear what everybody has to say and, and see what – you know. So there's always an, a, another side to some of these tales that we hear as these elections mm-hmm. run, run, ramp up. 
So let's talk about Ronna McDaniel. She's been there for three terms. She had promised the third was her last, but, um, you know, she had been really selected by Donald Trump. And in the third term that I voted, it was uh, by acclamation because Donald Trump wanted her to stay. She promised then that that would be her last term. So this will be her fourth. What are your thoughts on Ronna McDaniel? Well, I did say Putin, didn't I? Uh-huh. <laughs> you did. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a fifth term and a sixth term and a seventh term next. Look, I coined the phrase McLeadership, right, uh, to, to, to describe McDaniel, McConnell and McCarthy in charge of, of, of the broader uh, you know, Republican apparatus. And, and what a farce that is, considering what the Republican base today looks like versus what they look like politically, right? They, they don't, you couldn't pop them into any, you know, right leaning room in America and expect them to fit in, you know, quite easily, which is which is a, a big problem when you have sort of a representative situation like that. And, and Ronner is probably the, the least um, in touch of all of those, uh, mostly because, you know, she's not elected. She doesn't have, you know, she doesn't hold that is her, her office is, is, is sort of elected, right? It's elected by some of you, but it's not, it's not like McCarthy has to go in front of a, uh, you know, uh, like that, or, or McConnell has to go back in front of an elected audience like that every so often and actually make his case. Ronald doesn't. Um, and this is the first time, as you say, the prior being acclamation, um, that she's had to make her case. And you can see there isn't a particularly good case to make. She's, she's sort of like Gareth Southgate as England soccer manager right and it's like the the game has been played technically correctly but there haven't been any victories there haven't been any trophies there are no more stars on the chest no more world cups in the closet than when he first took over and this is this is what ronna feels like perpetual loserism um, one of the things that, uh, uh, and I'll wrap and, on this yeah and raheem we've got to we've got to get there real fast go ahead yeah yeah, one of the things I just want to point people back to is the fact that it's not about who, it's about what the organization is. And you have to look at that to get to the bottom of actually where you want this thing to go in the long run. Excellent. I wish we had more time. I may do some more pre-records for Saturday since we can never get you on a Saturday next year. But Raheem, thank you Sounds so much. Uh, God bless. Happy New Year. And uh, Raheem Kassam, check him. You bet. Check him out on all the social media. It's great. When we return, Antifa Hunter, Andy No, the New Year's Eve edition, Wake Up with Randy Corcoran here, 710 KNUS. All right, final segment of the first hour of our special pre-recorded New Year's Eve final show of the year. If you're just joining us, grab the podcast later because we just finished a sizzling interview with Raheem Kassam. Next hour, as promised, we'll have the interviews with all three of the announced frontrunners for RNC chair, MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell, California Republican National Committee woman Harmeet Dillon, and current RNC chair Ronna McDaniel. Again, no calls tonight, obviously, but please grab the 710 KNUS free-to-download app. Text to studio all you want. I've got access to those, and I'll respond to every single one over this New Year's weekend, I promise. Sean Beadle, now known as Heidi joined Stefan Tubbs for over an hour last Wednesday. If you missed it, grab hour one and two of Stefan's podcast at 710knus.com. It was fascinating. And frankly, they both did a great job. Stefan asked Beetle, what is your activist or your role now? I'm a journalist. I have not been involved in any kind of activism for at least four years since like early 2019, uh, you know, late 2018. Um, and while I've been 
involved in journalism. I have not been involved in any kind of activism. It's just the journalism. I, um, you know, I, I worked at the Colorado Springs Independent starting um, in 2020. And, you know, if I wrote about activism, I would include a disclosure. Prior to that, I had freelanced for them um, as, you know, kind of an opinion columnist. And, you know, there was one story in 2017. I covered the Abolish ICE protests that were going on at the GEO facility. I included a disclosure that I was an activist um, when I came on as a staff writer and wrote about more things. I, I, again, included those disclosures and was specific that I was involved in anti-fascist activism. Um, but these days, I'm just a reporter. I cover reproductive justice, politics, and extremism for the Colorado Times Recorder. Hmm. Sounds benign enough. They both promised to behave, and they did. Stefan asked Beetle, why are you here? Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, um, Andy No, uh, with the Post Millennial, uh, wrote about me, um, claimed to expose me as an Antifa leader. Um, and so it's generated a lot of fervor. A lot of people have kind of jumped on that. Um, you know, yourself, other, you know, radio personalities. Andy No, N-G-O, an actual journalist, unlike Beetle, New York Times best-selling author of the book Unmasked, editor-at-large at the post-millennial, almost killed by Antifa, walking down a street. Now, Beetle's blocked me on social media. I have no idea what Beetle does or says now, and, and really, I never did. But I do follow the courageous Andy No, who was recently restored to Twitter. Thank you, Elon Musk. And I thought, man, who better to get details from than the Antifa hunter himself, Andy No. Andy, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. Better believe it. I uh, Why don't you give a little bit of background, uh, what you were doing before the violence really started to erupt, uh, and how did it wind up impacting your life so much? Well, I was a student journalist for the student newspaper at Portland State University, where I was a graduate student in political science. I was assigned to cover the protests that were announced um, for the election night in 2016, November. And that night when I went out with my um, iPhone 7 or 6, I think it was, I was just recording footage and what I saw shocked me. Mobs of people dressed head to toe in black with their faces covered, carrying melee weapons like bats and crowbars, destroying downtown Portland and starting fires. And that was the first time I had ever heard of Antifa. I didn't know, I had no idea what they were about. I was just there to capture the footage. And the response from the local media coverage um, really surprised me in that it, it was quite defensive of the actions of these people. It, it excused it because they said that this was a, a basically a legitimate reaction to the election win of Donald Trump. Um, you know, I was very naive at the time I'm coming to learn, obviously, and we see this in the case of um, uh, Heidi Beetle, who you just played, is that there are a lot of far less ideologues to launder their ideas, their militant activist ideas, if you will, into journalism by becoming journalists. And they work for all these publications, and they hold the same beliefs as they did before if they were involved in street militancy. In the case of Heidi Beetle, this is very clear. She has never disavowed or distanced herself from her militant street activism days, which may or may not involve violence. 
um, given some of her posts in the past that she's tried very, very hard to delete from the internet um, as recently as this month after I outed her out as being one of the co-founders of the Colorado Spring cell of Antifa, which is a very violent extremist group, by the way. Um, she posted a picture of herself in front of a flag in the room, which was likely up there all the, all this time anyway, and also recommitting her uh, support for extrajudicial violence as well as political violence. And yet in her interview with your colleague, she still repeatedly identifies herself as a journalist. Um, now, look, I don't like that journalism essentially is, is it seems like anyone can self-identify into it. But if you um, believe that journalists should be silenced, as Heidi, as group, uh, her group has previously written, that certain journalists should be targeted for violence, well, I'm sorry, that's, you're not a journalist then. If you are silencing and trying to take away other the freedom of the press for other for your peers in the in the field because you don't like their work, um, then you're not a journalist. You're a militant activist, and I would argue a violent extremist. And she also made that very clear with her repeated statement saying that she does condone violence, and that. And I think probably one of the most disturbing things is when she was asked about what happens if somebody dies or is killed in the process of this so-called Antifa activism, and her response was, "Well." So be it. You know, that the, these are not the words of a journalist. And it's one thing if she has moved on to report, let's say, I don't know, on things that are completely unrelated to the stuff she was and is involved in. But no, she still focuses on these same beats. She targets the same political figures, um, conservatives, that she targeted before when she was on the streets. And I, by the way, as I said before, I'm not entirely convinced that she's not still involved and connected with these groups based on her own statements as recently as days ago as well as posing in front of the Antifa flag very much like ISIS style. Um, and, you know, you, you asked about how did I, well, maybe like how did I, how did, how did this become so personal for me? Well, for a journalist who was out on the streets recording and documenting things happening in public, as was my First Amendment right, uh, it led to me being beaten several times by the Portland cell of Antifa. I mean, I nearly died in 2019. They beat me so severely on the face and head that I had bleeding on my brain and was hospitalized for it. And spent a whole year in various therapies to treat um, the consequences of that. And then last year, in May of 2021, when I was undercover doing field observations for my in for my reporting, I was beaten again and had um, my PCL tendon in my knee ripped as I was beaten to the ground and chased, I had to take refuge inside a hospital, uh, in, a, in a hotel, excuse me, not hospital, in a hotel. So their violence is very real to me. I see it. I've seen it day to day. I saw my city of Portland, Oregon go up in flames for 120 days um, consecutively after George Floyd died. And, you know, Heidi should have been asked as well, how, how did she feel about a Trump supporter getting shot dead by a self-declared Antifa member in Portland, Oregon? This was somebody with a gun 
who was lying in wait around the corner before accosting this Trump supporter and shooting him dead. That's not self-defense. So, you see, my what was also very revealing is that a number of Democrat politicians and other journalists have expressed their public support for Beetle, which I think makes him unfit for office. That's my personal opinion. Um, advocating support for an individual who calls for extrajudicial violence, yeah, you you have no no role, you should have no role in liberal democracy then if you are explicitly supporting people trying to undermine the most basic tenets of the rule of law. And and I'm going to name names, you know. I, I posted the screenshots from Repres- Representative-elect Stephanie Vigil. Um, she's for um, uh, District 16. Um, Representative uh, uh, Stephen Woodrow as well as expressed public support for Beatles this month. So um, you have a big problem in Colorado Springs. And, you know, I, I always thought of Colorado Springs as this moderate, uh, sleepy town in Colorado. And it surprised me a couple of years ago to see that it's there's this militancy that's been developing there. I mean, to the point that you, there were um, violent Antifa members who were um, arrested at the 2020 riots in Portland, who came from Colorado Springs, by the way. It's incredible. We're talking with Andy No. You can follow him on Twitter again now at Mr. Andy No, NGO. You can follow his writing at thepostmillennial.com, thepostmillennial.com. Andy, I've got personal experience with these people. I was standing with um, Michelle Malkin and others at the ICE facility in a Stand With ICE rally that we put together on very short notice. Fortunately, a lot of police presence, so instead of real violence breaking out, instead we had the loud uh, bullhorns blazing in our ears and you know things being thrown at us and, and stuff like that just to prevent us from speaking. But I was also emceeing a pro-police rally in downtown Denver when the police were also there, and they stood by and allowed Antifa to rush the stage to destroy equipment, to punch people, throw them down concrete stairs, old ladies, old men injured. The founder of pro-police rally Colorado hit over the head with a, I forget now, skateboard or, or something. And it was just allowed to happen. And so we had our own personal taste. We had our nightly burnings and uh, all of the downtown damage taking over the streets and all of that. So it's very, very real. And your experience being almost killed or at least seriously injured on at least two occasions is just just amazing that in a so-called civilized society with the so-called rule of law in place, that one side of the political equation, these radical leftists, are allowed to get away with it. And then we have people... Like, and I don't want to get sidetracked on January 6th, but we have people there, some who broke laws and committed violence and should be prosecuted and probably jailed. But people being hunted down for simply just being present in, you know, on January 6th in Washington, D.C. And so the, the two-tiered, two-sided justice system is a real problem as we head into 2023. Yeah, and I, I, I would urge um, residents of Colorado Springs to not be complacent and think that this militancy issue remains a fringe problem. There were a lot of naive people in Portland who saw a bubble, bubbling up a radicalism on the far left in Portland years ago. They really just kind of ignored it because thought, well, you know, what's the worst they're going to do? They're going to hold these protests. They're not going to really do that much destruction. 
and then you allow the um, the networks and the relationships to develop the strategies and the in the money as well also to to be to play a role and then you you get basically what is a month uh, a year long of uprisings insurrections i would argue in a major city in the pacific northwest that also had ties to chapters and cells across the u.s and colorado springs is is i would i argue now a hot spot with how brazen their organizing is you know they've been kicked off Twitter for the violent extremism, but they moved to Mastodon. And if you go on there now, they're um, and looking at the comments, they're they're even more extreme than they were on Twitter. They're posting, um, they're calling for the addresses of specific targets, um, and their comrades and allies in the comments are talking about going to those individuals individuals' homes. So you know this is. At the end of the day, this is a law enforcement issue and one that I think requires a federal law enforcement response, given how sophisticated their organizing tactics are and how good they are at destroying and concealing evidence and also deceiving the public through people like Heidi Beadle, who launder the same exact ideas of mainstreaming extrajudicial violence and political violence into the mainstream through so-called journalistic outlets. A real journalist is with us, Andy No, a victim of Antifa violence. You mentioned doxing, the idea of giving out people's addresses, and Heidi Beetle uh, had no problem expressing support for that idea on Stefan Tubbs' podcast on Wednesday night. Yeah, I think it's an important, uh, you know, public service. And and just so people think don't think we're making it up, here's what Heidi Beetle had to say about condoning violence. Um, so I guess if you're looking for like a yes or no answer, I mean, yes, right? Like violence and self-defense, um, violence to prevent. Self-defense, some people would say that's not violence. I mean, it's self-defense. I mean, I guess technically, if you do punch somebody in self-defense, it's violence. Go ahead. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, I condone violence. It's, it's a part of our society. It's something that people face, um, you know, in all kind of walks of life, it is a presence. And when you talk about kind of covering extremism and, you know, on the fringes of politics on both the left and the right, you know, violence is a part of that world. What's so hypocritical to me, Andy, no, is that they act like, well, this is this happens on both sides. You know, the, there's that radical right contingent that's always out there burning down cities or going to people's homes and, and things like that. And there has been some of that as a reaction to what we saw during the summer of violence, uh, what what exactly? How did you find out? Stumble across Heidi Beetle? How did this person get exposed last week for uh, for who they really are? Well, um, I mean, for a number of years, I, I keep an eye on um, certain individuals who express violent extremist sentiments, and also on accounts that um, just disappear entirely one day, but nonetheless are archived through certain ways. And um, I found these old posts from an account that um, Heidi Beetle ran on Twitter uh, under a moniker that linked to her blog that had her photo and all that. It was on these old deleted posts that she admitted that she started the Colorado Springs Antifa account as well as its blog. So she... By the way, she is deceiving the public when she says, I've always disclosed that I was involved in anti-fascist activism. Um, 
If that's the case, why did she work so hard to scrub the posts that revealed the extent to her activism, so-called activism on the ground? And also the posts about where she talked, about why she was driven to that group. Um, she, I mean, I'm quoting here now. I think a big part of my gravitating toward Antifa was a substitute for the Russian excitement of being in the army. Every, pretty much everything we did was heavily influenced by small unit tactics. I'm skipping on further in the quote. It was fun to be part of the team and S word up again. I mean, this is pretty clear evidence of uh, a conspiracy um, to engage in criminal activities. And it would be nice is Ms. Cito clarified what she meant by asked up again? Is she talking about hurting and injuring people? Is she talking about property destruction? And why does she delete all these posts? Yeah, and it's, you know, people should know by now, nothing ever goes away from the internet. Uh, it can be found out there if you know what to do and, and what you're looking for. And after Beetle came back onto social media, after your expose, Beetle said, so I guess it's time to come clean. They are kind of right. You know what they say about broken clocks. I did start the Colorado Springs Antifa account and the blog, and, and I had experience just following or at least reading sometimes what they'd post there, and it was directed attacks. Show up in neighborhoods. Do this. Do that. Uh, and law enforcement just seems to sit by and twiddle their thumbs. The uh, Colorado Springs anti-fascist Twitter page has gone down. Are they still functioning as far as you can tell? Yes, they moved on to Mastodon, uh, the volunteer streamers who were recently um, kicked off Twitter are now organizing on Mastodon, which is, um, I mean, there's basically, there's no content moderation there. It, is, it has, it features some of the most depraved and violent extremist content you can imagine, and it has um, people posting addresses and names and photos of specific targets in the hopes that somebody will take some type of direct action, i.e. kill these individuals. Um, so, you know, the, as I said a moment ago, this is beyond, you know, what any single journalist like myself could really handle. This is a, a law enforcement issue. Um, we've had now for years a, um, we, we, the American public has given the space for violent extremists who organize under left-wing causes to to organize and to carry out violence, deadly violence, uh, destruction of property. And and by the way, in the soundbite you just played a moment ago, uh, there was a sleight of hand slightly in um, what Beetle said. She said, uh, uh, when asked if she support, uh, condoned violence, she, her response was talking about self-defense. One thing that listeners have to understand about the Antifa ideology is that they view their own preemptive violence as self-defense. So when they carry out an attack on a conservative or a target, it's an act of self-defense against their homophobia, against their transphobia. And you can also see this on the post of screenshots that I've posted on my social media and in reporting about the Colorado Springs Antifa cell. They, they call for people to um, to break the teeth of transphobes, and that's how they view self-defense. So they redefine words to be completely different than traditional meaning or, or, or common understanding 
you know, so even the term anti-fascism is, is meant to deceive. It's meant to evoke feelings of fighting against the evils of Nazism and racism and in the far right. But really their, their mandate is to shut down any and all of the right. And you will notice that their language is very intentional in collapsing any type of conservative ideology or organizing all under the banner of Nazi and sicking their comrades, their ideologues, their allies um, to go after these targets. And, you know, it can be as simple as things like harassing them in public or harassing them online, all the way to releasing addresses, releasing names of family members, to showing up at their home, to beating them when they see them in public, or even to kill someone. So this is, all, all of that is accepted and approved under their ideology and tactics. Indeed, or herself said, if somebody gets killed in the course of this, you know, that's, that's part of the game. And that's such a disgusting way to look at human life. And this is the danger of political violence to, to because of one's political ideology, viewing that as giving a mandate to, to hurt, injure, and kill other citizens. It's uh, it's terrifying. We're talking with Andy. No, we really need to wrap up here, Andy. I want to remind folks that uh, your New York Times bestselling book is out there, Unmasked. You write at the postmillennial.com. People can follow you at Mr. Andy No back on Twitter. Uh, real short answer if you can, but a final question. Have you seen anywhere in the country where law enforcement, where concerned nonviolent citizens of whatever political persuasion have been able to make a dent against this Antifa violence? Yes, in my reporting, uh, reporting uh, this year, it was um, in San Diego County that prosecutors have now got six successful convictions against um, 11 members of Antifa in Los Angeles and San Diego who carried out a really violent attack on beach goers and Trump supporters uh, early January 2021. Um, the five remaining are going to trial. Six have pleaded guilty so far. And if you look at the charging documents as well as the evidence, these people were clearly part of Antifa because of the Twitter accounts they were involved with. Um, and also other evidence that was presented in the court, in the process of um, the, the pre-trial court um, hearings. Um, and Andy, also, we we go. Yeah. I, we better we better leave it there. We we need to get you back because there's so much more to tell of the story. But I've told you this before in person. I'll tell it to you again. I'm just so grateful for men of courage like you. Thank you so much for your time with us in Denver. Happy New Year to you, and uh, we'll have you back in the new year, put you on the show once again. Thank you, sir, and good day. Goodbye. All right, that was something. We will get Andy No back maybe several times in the new year, and uh, maybe we'll ask Heidi on. That might be interesting. Regardless, that's the end of the first hour. Stick around for hour two. All of those interviews I promised with uh, Mike Lindell, Ronna McDaniel, Harmeet Dillon. That's next. Stay with us. 710 KNUS.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.